I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to a special episode of the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's special episode does exactly what it says on the tin, plus a little more. Advantage Go organised a prestigious panel of three prominent US-focused PNC CEOs, and I got to work with them on dissecting the state of the market. Mark Aidey, CEO of Crum & Forster, Andrew Robinson, CEO of Skyward Specialty, and Greg Hendrick, the CEO of Vantage Group, were all on excellent form as we examined rate adequacy, the prospect for lost trends and whether underwriters might keep ahead of them, resurgent economic and social inflation, the re-rating of cyber insurance, and the ever-developing view of the industry COVID loss. We also rounded up the mid-year renewals, talked about the largely benign impact of reinsurance on the current market, and took a view on the sky-high valuations of public and tech stocks, and the future of innovation and the industry's developing relationship with technology. Many thanks again to Advantage Go for organising this one. All I had to do was show up and ask the questions. There's a ton of great insight in here, so I'll step aside and let you get stuck into it. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everybody. Let's get straight into this. What's your feel for overall rate adequacy right now in the marketplace, Mark? Yeah, I would say for us, we're feeling good about where we're at right now. But I do have a feeling that we're going to be chasing the trends from here on out, right? So I think there's a lot of uncertainty around what those trends will be, whether they're social inflation, post-COVID ramifications, um, real live inflation at this point is rearing its head. And then cyber is a whole other animal. And so I, I think as far as it is right now, we're feeling pretty good about adequacy. We're not really taking for granted that it'll be flat from here on out. That sounds a bit like when people describe a bull market in the stock market, people say, well, it's always climbing a wall of worry. Andrew, does that sound right to you that you're cautiously optimistic that you're going to be following these trends and you'll be able to keep ahead of them? I would agree with Mark just in sort of the context. It feels like we've passed peak pricing, except for specific categories, cyber obviously being one, some excess casualty categories being others. And I feel pretty good about the rate environment right now relative to loss trend. But you know, to Mark's point, we've been living in an environment for the last 15 months that doesn't reflect ordinary economic realities. You know, We've seen that in terms of just the frequency and also the paid loss trends have changed. So I do think that it's a good environment, but I think we have some uncertainty on the loss cost side that we certainly want to stay in front of. We don't want to back up again to where we were just back 24 months ago. Just on the uncertainty, am I to detect more uncertainty than there has been? Or is it just the same uncertainty that there's always there? I suppose we always have uncertainty. Greg, are you feeling more uncertain than you would have been this time last year? No, I think in this time last year, the answer would be no. I, I do think there's more bad news to come in the industry, particularly in the long tail lines of business. I think the courts will start up again here in the US that social cost or whatever you want to call it, the large casualty loss inflation will pick up again and you just need to stay on top of that. So while the numbers agree completely with, with what Andrew and Mark have observed, I think there's still more facts to come to light and emerge and, and continue to put pressure upward on pricing. Maybe not at the same rate everywhere as it was before, but certainly there'll be continued pressure there. I think on the short tail lines of business, there's still kind of a lack of enough premium for uncertainty. The returns are acceptable, but they're not what you would normally expect them to be kind of post the activity we've had over the last, call it, four years on the cat side. So I think there, 
we talked about last time, Mark, the OOPS premium, I call it, you know, it's just the OOPS premium has been rubbed out and some of it's been put back, but not all of it. Whether it comes or not is a different story. Certainly the supply and demand is pretty well balanced at the moment in that short tail line of business. So Andrew's just said that we've come through peak pricing correction. Say, Mark, do you think we've still got a little bit more hardening to come or is it just simply that that rate of hardening is going to be lower than it has been? Yeah, I would say our rate change is slowing down, you know, but as Andrew pointed out, I think that's line by line, right? So I would say for excess casualty, for a lot of the commercial auto, it's still pretty hardy galloping, I would say, on that. And then for cyber, I'd say that's accelerating. And so I would say for a lot of the business, if there's such a thing, the vanilla specialty, right, we're starting to see a diminishment of the rate change, but it's still positive rate change. I would excerpt, like I said, excess and commercial auto, and then cyber still accelerating. So I feel like it's in that stutter step right now where people are trying to figure out if they've got enough. You know, we are seeing new people show up a little bit more aggressively. And so that changes the dynamics a little bit. But yeah, I would say everything across the board, getting giant rate increases is starting to see the end of that run. And so Mark, as an incumbent, you mentioned about new people showing up. Obviously, we've got one revamped and relatively new and one completely new. I'm sure they would say that their new capital is just a drop in the bucket. Are you starting to see that some of that new capital formation that we've seen in the last 12 months is starting to make a bit of an impact on a competitive landscape? Yeah, I mean, everything's on the margin, right? So that is starting to show up. It's a big space. I think there's always been a lot of capacity. So new people are, are welcome, right? We don't stay up at night kind of worrying about that. I think where it's showing up is more on the talent front, right? There's only so many people to go around in some of these spaces. And so I think that's starting to heat up as well right now. So that would be probably more front and center what we're seeing disruption-wise from the new guys. Okay, so Greg and Andrew, hands off Mark's staff, I think is what he's saying there. Yeah, I was going to say that's a private problem. <laughs> I'm not aware of any, just to be... Just to be- <laughs> anyway, you look after them. I remember David Howden said to me when I was talking about poaching, which is often a journalistic expression we use for when people take each other's staff from each other. And he said, you can't poach people because it kills them. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't do that. What about the mid-year renewals, let's say, Andrew? How have they panned out? And how's that feeding into your management information and your thinking for the end of the year and about whether you're going to be hitting targets and budgets? And, and maybe would you be asking for more capital at this stage because you're getting excited? Boy, that's a loaded question. So I think our situation is unique because we've done a lot of cleaning up the portfolio in the last year. And so in cleaning up the portfolio, uh, you know, I just in general, I think that we're undoubtedly a gross line underwriter. We're trying to make money for ourselves and our reinsurers. I think our reinsurers appreciate that. Uh, looking at six ones right now, there are some lines of business which have just come in because of our re-underwriting and the quality people you know, leading the businesses and so forth. They're just in materially different positions. I think that looking at CAT, it's come off from six one of, of last year, I would say, but it's not way off. But that's just one company's view. I do think that one of the big uncertainties and this place is something that Greg said, and going back to your earlier question on, you know, just loss cost inflation. And I think that has to go into the calculus for the primary guys and the reinsurers is just, there is real genuine uncertainty just in the economic inflation environment. Forget about the, the sort of the legal social element. 
you follow construction costs and the reality is, is that business values are greater, replacement values are greater. And whether that's going to be sustained because we're in a longer term inflationary period. But those things tend to have to find their way into the calculus of the primary guys and the reinsurers. And I think that the reason why I'm hedging your question is because I don't think that all of that has been kind of internalized yet. It, it feels like you know there's a lot of reaction going on still. But again, it's a view when you asked it, I, I'm, I'm sort of answering it through our 6-1 renewals. Obviously, this inflation is coming around because of all the interesting things that have been happening. But it also, as I said, at its core, you wouldn't be having this inflation if you weren't having an exceptionally strong economic rebound. Is that generally a good thing for everybody that more economic activity is happening and therefore more insurance needs to be happening around that? I just say, in general, my view is whiplash in inflation versus yields is not a good thing for our industry under any circumstances. You know, I remember when I left consulting in 2006 to come in the industry and the embedded yield the portfolio of my company I was at was high fives, right? And, you know, new money yields today are high twos. And if inflationary characteristics aren't aligned with that and they sustain, that's just bad for everybody, right? Payroll's going up comp costs having to chase that. There's always that dislocation. It creates friction in the market that I don't think is a positive kind of friction. You're worried with someone like Greg with a pristine balance sheet. You're just worried that you're going to be like a pensioner stuck there with terrible, terrible income and all everything else is being eaten away by inflation. Well, I think we get the benefit of not having the reserves, which can really, old reserves can get take off on your inflationary environment. But then you got to be disciplined. And at least when I was hearing Andrew says, you got to put another ratchet on being disciplined around pricing because you can't price for it, right? If you're disciplined around, you keep getting that rating because you can't just ignore it. You got to build it into your, your piece. And I think for me, the June renewals, they were very, and this is a property cat commentary because we've just literally written our first few million dollars of premium over the last couple of weeks on the insurance side. So on the, on the reinsurance side, it was a very bifurcated market. You know, one number comes out of the sausage machine, but in the end, it was a lot of different stories, right? There was Low layers versus high layers, where low layers are getting much more rate than the headline number. And upper layers, honestly, cap funds basically rate decreases, if you put it that way, and maybe smaller rate increases in the traditional insurance market. And you've got operators that have shown a disciplined record of success who benefited from lower rate increases and those that have had challenges to perform that experience much higher rate. So I'd like that discipline in the marketplace that it wasn't just, okay, everyone gets 10% or 5%, we move on. It's much more thoughtful. Than it's a showing that I've seen in prior years. And I agree completely with what Andrew said. We have not factored in, in a market perspective the kind of pricing changes that may need to reflect the fact that lumber costs X percent more than it used to 12 months ago. I mean, it's kind of judged in there, wag of the finger, but it's not explicitly built in yet. The one thing I'd say, Mark, just I, I, I believe probably all three of us are facing it down on the investment side is like, on one hand, you're doing this search for yield, right? Which either means you're taking on market risk or you're stretching out your durations. On the other hand, like almost 30% of our invested assets are cash and cash equivalents, obviously suppressing what we can generate and trying to figure out the inflationary environment, get your durations right and so forth. It's an interesting and challenging time. This is the part where I'm saying this is the part that's not good for the industry. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to have a situation where there's a discontinuity between the asset side of the balance sheet and the liability side of the balance sheet. And that, that's what I was trying to describe. And I think Greg said it well when he characterized, you know, looking specifically at property as, as one of the proof points. One thing I wanted to ask you, perhaps Mark would be a good one. As Greg's hinted there, obviously Greg started with reinsurance because it was the quickest startup out of Bermuda. 
But when we look at the dynamics of the marketplace at the moment, we, you know, we'd commentate and say it's a harder market in insurance and it's been more insurance driven and that reinsurance has been tagging along behind. Is that a fair description of your feeling of how your reinsurers and your relationship with reinsurance, as, as obviously you all have a relationship with reinsurance, has it been effectively a benign influence on your insurance planning? Yeah, I think for us, the reinsurers have been incredibly reasonable, right? We've got a lot of long-term supporters, and they're really happy with what we're getting in terms of rate change and some of the terms and conditions on the front end. And so they seem to have been pretty happy to sign on to benefit from what we're doing on the front end of that without putting, I guess, rate on top of rate. So I think they've been incredibly reasonable, and that's been an orderly market from our standpoint. You know, I think as Craig said, if we had delivered a lot of losses or had terrible results, it might have been a different story, but we've been pretty consistent and this is a good time for us on the primary side. So they, they seem to be very reasonable right now. So it's been a good affirmation of that partnership model that you're happy with everything and you've got lots of other things to worry about, but at the moment you don't have to worry about your reinsurers being there. Exactly. How's that been for you, Andrew? Look, one thing we should remember about reinsurance is that all the actions on the primary side inure to the benefit of the reinsurers, right? So if they're getting rate on top of what you're getting and on top of your terms and conditions and everything else, it has a compounding effect. Now, generally speaking, on the soft market, it goes the other way, right? You're doing things on price, maybe some things on terms and conditions, and, and the reinsurers are amplifying their own situation. I have found that the reinsurers are, at least in our circumstance, are interested and engaged in a good underwriting story. And even better, if you have an underwriting story backed by results for us, you know, much of it has been trying to turn around certain businesses and then expose the really good stuff so that our reinsurers understand. And I think we've had a a good deal of success. And in my view, I think a, a balanced set of outcomes is how I would describe it. Greg. Probably worth turning to you as absolutely a startup in insurance. I presume that you do have some reinsurers that you've been relying on for support and you have a relationship with the wider insurance market in this sense. Was that right or was you taking it all net? We're going to buy reinsurance. I mean, we've built a model where our reinsurance assumed side is more short tail specialty oriented, uh, more excess of loss oriented. So I would say there we certainly have seen pricing power, perhaps not at the same level that you've seen on the insurance side, but certainly pricing power on the excess of law short tail side. On the long tail side, we're more of a buyer. We're not going to really write it on the assumed side. And that's mainly because I agree with Mark completely. You know, The reinsurers seem very happy to pick up the underlying rate increases from the marketplace, but they really haven't moved seeding commissions all that much. And they're still on a level where to us, we'd rather be a buyer of that capacity than, than a seller of it. And so I would say that's been a little more surprising that in other hard markets, to your question, the market at the very beginning of this bit here was, our reinsurers aren't leading the charge this time. They're really not leading the charge on the commissions on long tail. You would have seen them drop well below 30 in previous hard markets, whereas here they're hovering you know, on these long tail quota shifts kind of in the mid 30s. And so for us, we'd rather buy those. It's prudent risk management to be a little more thoughtful out of the box and not go everything gross equals net. And reinsurers are willing to give us a fair seating commission that lets us feel good about what we're buying. The one thing I would say the reinsurers are leading a little bit on the COVID and cyber exclusion front. So I had to say what was notable this year for the reinsurers, it was that they were really kind of leading the charge. 
So that did put us in a little bit of a position to have to think about our netline and, and what we felt about like cyber, silent cyber, that is, and the next pandemic relative to our primary products. I suppose, Mark, with you as a buyer of insurance, understand that to be fair, given that they're aggregating all this stuff globally, and this has been an absolutely global event. Yeah, I think it's fair. And, and you know, to the extent that they're driving something that everybody probably should think about their position more actively, and then if you really want that covered, that might be a different discussion than just slamming it into one of your global treaties. So I think that's fair. And I think that's helpful from an overall standpoint, of, as long as they're consistent across the board, right? Seems like a good time to bring in, actually, this wider discussion about the impact of COVID on the dynamics of the marketplace. Andrew, what is the latest market consensus? It's been a while since we sort of checked in. And sometimes we do have a habit in this industry of almost tossing up a big number last year and then not checking up on it very often, and it starts to disappear and wash through different quarterly accounting periods. What's the latest thinking? What's the latest feel? From my vantage point, I think on the loss side, so the effects of just the loss working through, I would argue is at zero effect now, right? I mean, sort of the hard market seemed to amplify it. But if you're saying, what are the effects today? I don't think there are really a great deal of effects today. Look, the one thing I would say is that the whole loss pattern sort of clarity got a little upended here in the last 15 months. Anybody who would say to you that they know how to read the loss patterns given you just all you have to do is just open up your frequency charts, your paid charts, all those things, and you see things that look different than the past, right? And so you have to interpret what it means and what will happen as the economy not only resumes, but probably will be a rather sort of buoyant moment in time. And so to me, that's the part that if you're asking the effects of COVID, I find that to be the most interesting. And you see it in some of the results, right? You know, the last couple of quarters, there's just been some crazy results from some of the top specialty, large US-based multi-line companies. And they've been terrific because fundamentally frequency has been down during the, the past period while, you know, good rate was earning through. What happens on the other side of this to me is the big uncertainty that COVID creates. What about... Now that courtrooms are opening up and things are opening up a little bit, and we hope that they'll continue to do so around the world, we're starting to get some new data coming through on the courts have not been in session necessarily much in the last 12 months. So we suddenly get a bit more data and kind of reacquainting ourselves with those old lost trends and seeing where they're going now. <laughs> We're paying a lot of attention to this. I can say for sure that after a big pause in some of our legal disputes, there's actually been an acceleration in a very short period of time. Now, these are long dated, you know, and I, it's a small number, so I don't know if you can draw a trend line, but we're paying really close attention to the changes that we see, both in the courtrooms, but just in general, you know, watching the paid patterns and how they're starting to resume to a more normal level. I mean, is it making plaintiffs want to settle earlier because maybe they need cash or I, I don't know? There's no question about it that we saw a number of different trends here around the acceleration of settlements and aids, we saw recognition of ultimates sooner than we would. And at the same time, we saw also a slowdown just simply because the courtrooms are closed, right? So both things were happening. And Mark, can you add to any of that? I would say COVID, surprisingly, you know, after the fact, provided a you know negative social inflation for the year or maybe the year and a half. And the parsing out what is the residue from that is, is going to be a challenge. And I think 
you know, all the stuff that was in the headlines the day before we all shut down about social inflation, none of that went away. And so I think the opportunity for early settlements, you know, that window was maybe the first six months of the shutdown. You know, now people coming out of the other side are like, okay, I want to get back on the docket. We're starting to see trial dates and things like that show up. So when I was earlier talking about chasing the trends, I think that's a big one, right? Because you've got this divot and then it's going to all come roaring back. And I think it's going to come roaring back in a lot of interesting ways, right? I think for us, the economy coming back is a good thing. I think regular inflation, I'm not an economist, but I think that's probably more temporary. But I think the social inflation swamps the regular inflation outside of property and building cost type things. And so I think that's the one that everybody really needs to watch because you can start to get a little bit of a rumbling that people are going to bake. You know, some element of the frequency decline kind of automatically gets baked into your thinking about a particular account. So it's harder to call that trend line. But I think that's a little bit of a dangerous spot to be in if you're pricing uh, different accounts and especially if the frequency benefit kind of drags another three to six months, right? I think two, two things. One on COVID, I think one, there's still more bad news to come you know, throughout the system, you asked, you know, we don't go back and check back. The last thing I saw from somebody credible was in the $40 billion range, which seemed to jive with, if you kind of do some back of the envelope math, I think that number will go up. And I think you probably won't ever see all of it, right? You may not see some of the long tail lines of business. They'll get washed through the IBNR through prior years, and you may not even pick them all up. I do think Andrew's point about the settlements maybe coming faster. I do think that's a two-tier market. I think in lower limit, less hazardous, smaller law firms bringing these actions. I think Andrew's 100% right. <laughs> Those guys don't have tons of money and they're not going to sit around right. 15, 18 months waiting. I think on the other end, though, if you, I, you know, pick a topic, opioids or whatever, these guys are all funded. They're funded as a new asset class, if you listen to some of these investment folks. Yep. And they are going to sit there and wait until everything gets back open again and then come hard again, which is why I still think we've got this next wave of loss cost inflation to come at us because I think that's going to be hard. Now, it may not hit. Everybody's book's going to be different on this call and in the marketplace, depending upon where you play in those. But I feel like that's still coming for sure. Scary if they seem to be better capitalized than we are, but there you go. <laughs> You've mentioned about cyber already, a darling growth class, new business, innovation, particularly, and, and a kind of a bit of a salvation during the soft market for a lot of people in terms of helping the top line. And it was obviously very profitable as well. So you know, we've had ransomware particularly in the last 12 months. What's the current state? We seem to be in a correction phase and the fair weather, perhaps fair weather friends of the cyber market have, have now departed because it isn't fair weather anymore. Let me know, what's the state of the market, Mark? Yeah, I would say on that one, it's interesting, right? Because the early writers of that have this great track record. And there was a product that was, you know, people weren't sure if they needed it, wasn't sure what was covered, what was not covered. So it's a little bit in that interesting area that new products get. You know, I think that line sometime in the last 18 months was hit where all of a sudden the ransomware frequency went up. But it was that, it's only whatever, five, ten thousand a pop, you know, that's that's not gonna be bad. Then all of a sudden you suck to these multi-million dollar ransomware claims. And you see more of them, more of them, that it's more common. And if you really get into an interesting dynamic on those claims and how they roll and how fast 
they come at you and you got to make decisions. So I, I think a lot of people are looking at that. And so to the extent that you're looking back at the good old days, thinking about it, I think that's over. And so that's where I would say that one is one where the pricing hasn't quite caught up with where that market is. And I think there are some people hopeful that, well, maybe that'll go back, dull down, there'll be some kind of regulations or crack down on using cryptocurrency to pay those. Or you know, something will happen from above that'll make that go back to normal. But I think for a lot of people, you're now looking at buying into some frequency and some severity. And, and I think that's uh, interesting, but it's scary. And so I think the pricing is just not quite there yet. You know, Mark, first of all, I think cyber just as a, as a line is just incredibly fascinating for our industry. As far as I can tell, it's the only line that has material frequency, material severity, and material CAT. And yet nowhere in the loss experience to date have we had a CAT event, have we had an aggregation event. And of course, in theory, you have to allow for CAT. It's very interesting. Our corporate insurance renews on 6-1, right? So I'm going through all of the process on reviewing all of our cyber quotes and covers. And one view, but we're studying this closely through a number of different lenses as a company. And I would say to you that much of the change in price appears to be catching up on the last year loss events. And remember, this is a line of business where fundamentally you're insuring somebody who's trying to do something with intentional acts that's bad. It's unique in that regard. And so it's unclear whether the price clawback is sufficient because it feels like it's capturing last year's results as opposed to forward trend. I find it really interesting. People are being judicious on limits and so forth. But you know, there's a fundamental point here about one, pricing the CAD in, and then two, given what, as Mark described, just the fundamental change in the ransomware and the magnitude of the ransomware, the, the severity of that whether pricing is even remotely close to forward loss trends versus catching up with prior loss cost. Does that sound like you talking yourself out of writing this as a class? You know, ultimately, you have to ask the question about, does the market get to a place where equilibrium, where the market is not losing money, right? And if you're one of the good guys, you can make money. And I think that's a really important question to start with. At some level, there's analogs with EPL in the past. And I mean, you can find your analogs. I'm not sure we're at an equilibrium yet. And then ultimately, the cat costs have to be priced into this, right? Because there will be at some point an aggregation event that will be material. And and everybody's going to go, oh, well, we didn't load the 15 points that the book's taking for that, right? Or whatever it might be. I'd only add that, that you've seen the market shift from basically restoring customers' credit at a very fixed cost per customer. And it's kept expanding the coverage, expanding the coverage, and not doing all the good things that Mark and Andrew have noted. I'd only add that it's a hard market because it's restructuring, it's repricing. And then the last piece of it is the analytic tools. We've been doing this as an industry blind, effectively. But tools are starting to emerge. Are they the perfect answer? Will they model everything and get it? No, not at all. But you start to now talk to a lot of firms that feel they can pretty strongly do an outside-in look, an inside-out in terms of security, and then also some of these portfolio cat concerns that Andrew's raised. That I don't profess that they're the answer, and then you just blindly follow them. But you should have those before you start writing business. So we're kind of piecing our way through all those right now before we launch a cyber product. Because just to us, it's you can't charge off without that analysis done. When I had CFC, one of the London-based cyber, been known very well as the cyber underwriter for a long time, that they've decided to focus a lot more on that service offering as well, that 
when a loss event happens to be able to really almost that they felt that they had to own that now themselves and build it themselves. I don't know if, if that's one of the learnings of, of the last 12 months. You've got the smaller end of the market, which can definitely doesn't have any of the IT infrastructure, security infrastructure, can definitely benefit from somebody not only offering a policy, but offering a service. Then you got the upper end of the market, which is much more about, you could have the best service in the world, but you're not going to tell, let's use a really bad example. You're not going to tell Amazon how to do security. You're just going to be able to say, okay, given what I know about Amazon, this is where I view the risk to be. I'm willing to write this much limit and aggregate it across. So I think it's really where you are in that customer spectrum. I want to ask about the dynamics of the marketplace. Very often in a hard market or hardening market, Everyone gets back to basics, you're kind of fixing things and you're not really thinking about the products of tomorrow. Are you, as leaders, are you happy with the rate of innovation and new product development in the marketplace right now? And are we in that kind of typically retrenching kind of phase at the moment? Or would you think that's not correct? I'd say from our standpoint, like a lot of what we're doing is looking where the ball's going to go, right? Like, you know, one of our products that we're investing in is occupational accident for gig economy workers. And I think that's a tough one to pull together. It's got a lot of moving parts. It's very niche but we do a lot of it. And so while that product was historically used for trucking firms, which is where we kind of cut our teeth on it, now you look at it and say, well, yeah, all these other gig guys that totally use that and, and increasingly they want to offer that kind of benefit. So there are things like that that you kind of look out at the future and see what does that group need and can we provide interesting products. And so there are things like that that are happening even if you think about it. The home delivery market became gigantic over the last 15 months and they need that kind of product. And so, you know, what do they need? What can we do? And I think there is a lot of product innovation or repurposing of old products in that case to be had. In London, a lot of the waiters have then became Uber Eats riders. So they've, they've just bought a moped and they've got a, a learner sticker on the back and they're driving around suburbs of London delivering food uh, while looking at a smartphone. And I just wonder if they're a really good risk or not. <laughs> anyway, that's just an aside. Andrew, I think I saw something in the press the other day that you were doing something quite exciting sounding with technology. Yeah, I, well, I think first off, Mark's comments on, you know, ACAAC around the gig economy is really interesting. We may share some views on kind of the Wayne Gretzky go to where the puck is uh, is going to be versus where the puck is. Almost everything that we're doing now is starting with not just, hey, what's the category that we think is ripe and attractive for us, but we are asking really tough questions of ourselves around the role of technology and new forms of data and so forth. And I think we've been really successful. Yesterday, I gave a presentation and I, I talk about even in a tough class like commercial auto, we run a captive in the energy segment. We're agnostic on the telematics, but we require telematics and, and all the dash cams. We consolidate that information in real time and we play it back to the captive participants and effectively it gamifies their, <laughs> their behavior. And since they have a shared exposure with each other, it really drives the right kinds of behaviors, right? So it's like figuring out where that new information can actually drive behaviors differently. We're close to announcing something here in the property market that will be all around using high definition information, some proprietary models, where we believe that we can understand the risk better than the rest of the market. But we tend to be going to places where we think that there's economic development. I think that's why I point to Mark's example on the OCAG and the gig economy. That's a really good example of where there inevitably will be some development. And, and so we're thinking about things along those lines and putting technology at the forefront 
And I think that that's both things that we manufacture ourselves and we partner with others as well on that. And so that's really the focus for us and, and where you'll see the principal parts of our growth. Greg, I had you on the podcast as part of the class of 2020. Previous classes would have said, we have no legacy on the financial side of things. And one of the things that struck me that you'd said was, that, of course, we have no tech legacy. And that's one of your other big USPs. So are so you going to be bringing some of that tech agnosticism, that lack of green screen and all that kind of stuff to play as one of your USPs of the ability to be more nimble on these and adopt some of this new technology? Yeah, I, to us, the freedom of the tech lets you do everything from day one geared towards where we want to be, which is on this topic of innovation. So we get to build everything in the cloud. We get to rent what we don't need to build ourselves and then bolt on around it quite quickly. Bespoke solutions around how do you bring in submissions faster, how you have more claims faster, how are you more efficient, and then also the data analytics piece. So for us, it's a great advantage to be able to set that up from scratch with the goal of getting to where you want to get to, because we've all in our careers fought the legacy system issues and it slows down, particularly on data analytics. But I think both Mark and Andrew are correct here that I think sometimes we're a little hard on ourselves on innovation in the industry. I think people start to look for the next Amazon, right? So you see all these insure techs spin up huge valuations. I just don't think that's a realistic goal in our industry. It's a promise to pay. It's a topic that's bad news that makes people confront bad news in a way that they just don't want to. And it's not really right for that kind of complete innovation disruption. But I think both Mark and Andrew have touched on some really cool things. We were able, because we didn't have legacy reserves and no COVID exposure, we were able to do in a modest way, a COVID film and TV finance cancellation coverage. To me, that's a big innovation. It's not the rocket science of reinventing uh, insurance in a whole different way, but it's just coming at risks that, again, just to follow on market energy, coming on risks that are either emerging and gaining more and more traction, or you're just not being addressed in, in the marketplace. So we're very confident using that tech advantage to be able to go after those. And it won't be just us. We're not big enough to provide the solution for everything. So it's it's the other thing that sometimes gets lost in a lot of the risks that we all face. They're syndicated. Not any one of us necessarily solving the, the puzzle. We've never had so many technologists offering us tools and collaborative tools and underwriting tools. Things that in a hard market, I'm sure you, you'd love to get your hands on to be able to improve the skill and improve the productivity of your underwriters. Do you think you're really making the most of those tools that are now available to you? Or have you got plans to be doing more of that now that Certainly, that seems to be such a huge offering of amazing, or certainly on the surface, very interesting tools available to you and your underwriters. Mark? I would say a lot of ours are almost homemade, right? I mean, the advantage now is we can find people who've grown up handling big data sets that aren't our own internal data, right? So if you went back enough years, probably not even that many years, you'd have to have a giant data set that was yours and proprietary. You know, we've got people that will bring in and find data sets that we can use to do things that are almost magical. And so a lot of that's so very idiosyncratic to us, right? So whether it's sorting through how to do the SEO for pet health or how to dig through the flow of ENS submissions to figure out which ones to focus on. So things that bang the cash register things that uh, give us lift on the loss ratio. A lot of those are just the speed with which that has evolved, that we have access to things that are just really amazing. So I think, you know, that's one of those little known secrets in the industry, right? There, there's just a lot going on behind the scenes. 
a lot of times when people talk about IT, they're talking about Chrome's 200 years old, right? So unlike Greg, we have plenty of legacy stuff going on. That's not our problem, right? Like that's not where the opportunity is. But even on efficiency type stuff, the robots and things like that, all of that has been made so available to us to use really the lowest business units in the most granular business units can come up with ways of doing that stuff. And it's, it's amazing, really. So it sounds very positive that we're sort of on the cusp of a productivity revolution, a tech-led productivity revolution within insurance itself. We're not Amazon, but you know we do sell a lot straight to consumers on, on the internet. And so it has to work like Amazon to get that to work. I think in terms of a loss ratio lift, there's just a lot of interesting things going on there. And then efficiency is almost like the, the easy bucket at this point, right? Anything more from Greg there? Yeah, I, I mean, I would only add that these tools are being used extensively, as Marcus pointed out, in, in a lot of different institutions and in a lot of small pockets. I think the end goal is how do you get to market faster? Can you get your products out there? Because the world changes so quickly. We love our relationship we have on this COVID film and TV finance coverage, but if we continue at the rate of which we're continuing and people get vaccinated, we're not going to have the same buyer interest that we had six months ago when they couldn't get film and TV going. So you got to be ready to pivot again to, well, what's the next thing? And so I think that's where these tools really help is they let you get to market faster. And can they let you, particularly for us in the kind of upper middle market, large corporate space, you know, can you get a brighter, a wider breadth of products along the way? Over in London, in the subscription market, we've had some announcements around automatic underwriting, the first baby steps in automatic and perhaps algorithmic underwriting on the following side. How far down the line are we and how far would we want to ever go in terms of, obviously, we're talking about productivity kind of stuff and helping you triage and pick your spot, but this is all about enhancing the underwriter. What about replacing the underwriter at all? Do you think that would ever be the right thing to do in specialty or we should always leave it to the humans? Well, the first thing I say is that when we set out our strategy after I joined, we took a definitive decision really not to focus on the small commercial market because our view was the guys who are way out on the data front are way out on the data front. And those are companies like Travelers and Hartford and so forth. And then, you know, the new insure techs are trying to leapfrog by using third-party data. We thought that's, you know, that's a heavy capital investment. That's not for us. We're focusing on tough to understand risk and, and certainly higher up in the acuity and, and size scale. I think probably the best examples that you see in London are actually examples of key, you know, trying to better understand who are the best underwriters and why, which might be a more understandable problem than who than try to understand who are the best risks and why on an automated basis. Now that said, to your question earlier on tech, look, we've done some very focused things on tech that you asked me about earlier, but inside the four walls, Almost all of our dollars have gone towards business intelligence and trying to get ourselves to a point where we have a common and single version of the truth on everything and our ability to pen third-party data and to be able to drill down on any variable, risk or non-risk, to understand performance. And that we're way out in front of. So now the question is, can you actually turn that into predictive analytics and start to, to augment what your underwriters can do? And again, we're focused on specialty commercial, higher acuity, generally larger accounts. And so time will tell whether predictive analytics is a force in kind of the, call it the next, you know, one, two or three years in, in that area. But I think if anybody's well positioned to do it, given how we've invested in our own business intelligence, I think we're pretty well positioned to do it. 
Greg, do you think specialty is just there are too few numbers, not big enough numbers, they're not similar enough, and got to leave that to human judgment? Or is there another way? Well, I think there's a, there's a room for both. I could make a pretty good argument that if I quarter share Mark or Andrew's businesses, I am in essence automatic underwriting. I'm taking a percentage of every risk they write, regardless of how they write it. So you can argue that it's not that far off. I think in small, manageable pieces, you might be able to do this for specialty and more risky lines of business. I think where the past has shown is that if you try to take a small percentage of the really big risks, you get yourself out of whack very quickly. And one risk just throws you sideways too much in the portfolio. But if you're able to take an even dollar amount across all those, as opposed to an even percentage amount, there might be a way to build a portfolio that works. To me, it's portfolio underwriting as opposed to individual risk underwriting it doesn't make it right or wrong. It just comes with a different set of factors to, to think about when you build these businesses. And Mark, anything to add there? Do you think we're going to be able to have enough computing power to be able to analyze risks, individual risks in real time and get the computers to underwrite them? You know, we like our underwriters. So uh, I would never say never on stuff like that. It's uh, evolving rapidly, but it's asking a lot for the place we play. And so we tend to play in at least on the PNC side, the medium but hairy accounts where you probably want somebody looking at it. Uh, and not to say that they couldn't have enhanced view of the risk with AI, but as far as pulling the trigger for a $10 million limit or something, I'd probably rather have a, a person with skin in the game looking at that as opposed to the AI. Yeah, I suppose the AI and it doesn't quit to work for a competitor, I suppose. That's the only good thing about it. But Greg said something earlier, which I don't want to put words in his mouth, but maybe it's partly my job to. Do you think InsurTech's in a bubble? Uh, Greg said they had some pretty high valuations or extremely high valuations. I can't remember the exact words he said. Do you think now we've had a lot of InsurTech IPOs and we can look at them quarter by quarter? Are we in a kind of bubble here? We're in a kind of dot com bubble 20 years later? Well, since you put words in my mouth, maybe I'll start and then. And then... <laughs> yes, Greg. Yes, Greg. You can clarify for a start. I love the old line. I can't remember who to attribute it to, but it's clearly that line. The market can remain much more irrational for much longer than you can remain liquid. So whether I view it as a bubble or not, it's somewhat completely irrelevant. It certainly feels like it if you look at the valuations that are on offer and you see longtime analysts converting things to gross written premium growth as opposed to dollars of earnings that Mark, Andrew, and I get held to account every day by our shareholders. It does feel like a very frothy valuation. My guess is that it, it ends like many of these things. At some point, something tips it all over and people realize, my goodness, they're not going to make money for another 20 years. And so what am I actually paying for? But how that plays out, I don't know. It isn't clear to me how we've gotten to this point, honestly, but we have, and I think we just got to play through the bubble. What do you think, Andrew? Well, look, you know, you, Mark, as you know, I was investor, uh, CEO. You, you helped stoke this bubble, didn't you? Yeah, Andy? I helped. I helped to stoke the bubble. I've realized some value off of the bubble, but I'm also very pragmatic about it. I don't think that there is any possible rational justification for the public valuations, and I think, ergo, probably at the later stage private valuations. That's just a hard truth that I think about for myself, but it might not be other people's hard truth. You know, Root is due to lose $550 million this year. It's trading at seven times sales. I won't even put it in a book value perspective. And it is really hard to understand in any form how that could be justified when you think about 
great companies like Progressive or Geico or others. And so, and by the way, that story repeats itself in other categories. The thing I find most interesting is, look, we're in the business of taking risks. That's what our business is about. And all you have to do is open up quarterly reports or any of the reports to shareholders, and you can't find something that reports on the fundamentals, which is your underwriting contribution, which to me is just odd, right? It's not like we're in a stage now where when the internet started taking hold and Gordon Moore was talking about network effects, that was real economic theory. And there was a set of metrics that went with that. That isn't what's happening in insurance. In the end, you're going to make an underwriting contribution if you're in this business. I'm a little bit more biased because I think that the three of us are on the phone hustling hard to do well for our investors, for you know the people who put their, their capital to work and be rational, responsible folks. And sometimes you have to make investments to get there to get the learnings, but I don't find any justification for the kind of valuations that are out there. And Mark, would you agree? I presume I presume you would, and you'd remind them that there's no first mover advantage in an industry that you've already been in for nearly 200 years. There's no <laughs> Google here. <laughs> well, and I think it's usually not, you know, Chrome and Force, they're trying to knock off, right? So, I mean, if you were going to go head to head with Progressive or Geico or, you know, even Allstate or State Farm, they have a really good product and they do a really good job and it's pretty well priced. And so how are you going to knock them off? So I think the bubble is there. I think a lot of these guys are going to have to start delivering results or, or evaluations to come back to earth. You know, having said that, I'd love to have a multiple to revenue. So uh, you know. well would. You know, one thing I'd say, Mark, is I provide sort of a very cynical view on the valuations. I will oftentimes say, I was asked the question about like, you know, Elon Musk is coming into the insurance industry, right? Tesla is offering that. And my view is it's good for us in that it forces everybody to raise their game, right? So while, well, I don't think Lemonade's fairly valued, I certainly look at even in the low value claims part of the market, how it is that they're using AI and robot technology to, you know, automatically settle 29 or whatever percent of their claims that they're settling even if those are less than $1,000, that's really instructive for our industry, right? And you know, you look at those examples, you say there's a lot there that we all can learn from and that we can do better for ourselves and for our industry. So that's not without value to the industry. It's just not proportional to what the value that, in my view, the value that the public market and even the late stage private investors are, are assigning to these guys. Thanks, Andrew. I think, yes, the excitement's real because it's based on something real and there's some really exciting things in there. But perhaps, yeah, the valuations have gone, gone a bit crazy. I'm looking at my list of questions and I'm looking at the clock and realizing that we're never going to have time to answer all of these. So I'm going to thank all of you and let you go. So thank you to Mark. Thank you to Greg. And thank you to Andrew for being so lively and answering all my questions. I think you've given every listener a really good flavor of what the state of the market is right now. It's like it always is. It's fluid and it's fluctuating and it's very interesting. So thank you so much for giving me your time, pulling yourselves away from that market. I'll let you get back to work right now and, and we'll be catching up very, very soon. Thank you, all of you. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. 
Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.